The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 5. And it reads, Every high priest is selected from among men, is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes his honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Amen. Thank you, Rafa and Sylvia, which actually lends to our topic today, because everything that we've been doing this morning is worship. And so as we continue looking at the book of Hebrews together in chapter 5, those first five verses already indicate some ways that we're intended to think about worship. In fact, even as we do so together this morning, have you ever wondered why people worship? You look back all throughout history, all different places in the world, more often than not, every culture, every place you go, people worship. Now, there are different religions and different faiths, but I was curious to wonder, apart from the Bible, how do people answer that question who don't believe in God at all? How do they look at the world and wonder and, and think about why people worship? And I came across an article by a psychologist who tried to answer this by saying, well, it's because human evol humans evolved and evolved the ability to have different religions in order to try to keep people, groups, and tribes together. Saying the same is true for language. There are different languages because of the evolved need to communicate. But as you can see, to try to look to evolution alone brings up even more questions. It doesn't answer the question at all. Questions like, why do people speak? Why do we communicate? Why do we have the desire to join together? It'd be like saying with evolution, it'd be like saying a wheel somehow evolved itself to create itself into a car to drive down the street. Instead, as we're going to see together in Hebrews 5, the reason we worship is because God is the master designer of all our lives. And he tells us what worship is all about to help us in our own lives. We've already looked at the first five verses together. 
But the first thing we see is that here in chapter 5, Jesus is described as the high priest, sumo sacerdote. And that's something I think almost everywhere in the world people would understand in some way, shape, or form. There are religious leaders, priests, who generally, even as we're told here, help people meet with God. Priests go between our mediators. And even in the Bible, if we go back before Jesus, God had requirements for those who would serve as priests. Part of that requirement is to listen to what God has said. There were certain requirements for the offering of sacrifices, ultimately pointing to the coming of Jesus. Priests offered sacrifices to communicate the atonement for sin, the payment for sin. Instead of us being punished, there was a substitute made. In one of the most important times in the Bible for worship for God's people Israel was a holiday called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In English, it's a, easy to understand. Atonement is at one, meant meaning God and people are made at one, to become one. In fact, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 16, we see what that is described like for high priests before Jesus making offering for worship. Leviticus 16, verses 16 and 17. We see that God is describing what it's like for uh, high priests to worship for sin. Apologies, I have it wrong in my notes. Let me just look back on our screen here. It says, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and the rebellion of Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most hot holy place until he comes out having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. So we see that back in the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, God set aside the most holy place, sometimes called the Holy of Holies, where offerings were made to deal with sin. And no one was able to go into the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest. And to show the seriousness of sin, there was a curtain or veil placed so that no one could go in until the Day of Atonement. This was to show the seriousness of sin, but also to show how holy and perfect God is. 
So even as we read that together this morning, you might be thinking, why don't we do these things today? What does that mean for us as we think about why we worship? Well, if we go later in the Bible, the death of Jesus, that place, the Holy of Holies, where there was that curtain, usually at Easter we read these verses because they're important. But in Matthew 27, starting in verse 50, here's what happened at the death of Jesus. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. So at the moment that Jesus sacrificed, became the sacrifice for sin, at that exact moment, the place where high priest had been worshiping for hundreds of years had ultimately that curtain torn in two. From top to bottom, this was no accident. Where we could not go because of sin has now been opened to show us that Jesus is all that is needed. There is no longer a temple when it comes to worship. There is no longer a curtain. There is no separation. All because of what Jesus has done. The great high priest so that now we can truly understand worship. We can meet with God because of Jesus by faith. Without Jesus, that's where all the other religions try to come up with what it means to worship God, ultimately to be separated, unable to truly know how to deal with sin. And yet, sadly, even God's people Israel had misunderstood worship. Many in Israel had begun to think that all the things we just saw described, the high priest, the offering, and the curtain, the holy of holies, started to become empty rituals. Thinking all I have to do is to pay money. Even as we heard in the children's message, just do good things. Thinking worship is Easy, isn't it? Just let the priests offer for sin. Then we can move on with our lives, they perhaps thought. Never pausing to think about what those things represent. But Jesus came to change that. He tore all of that apart. All the empty things that can happen to make a better way. Which is why even today, some people misunderstand that about religion. One thing that needs to be torn apart is people thinking that, well, really, all religions, some think, are the same. They might even think, Jesus sounds good. He has some good things to teach. The Bible is, is good. But, but isn't that the same as every other religion? Maybe saying that to be a Christian is only one way to go to heaven. But the falsehood there is, Jesus is not just a way. Jesus is the only way. That's why we needed him to die on the cross, to tear that separation apart because of our sin. 
fact, I often wonder that. Imagine Jesus dying on the cross and hearing, well, Jesus, that's good, but that's only one other way to go to heaven. There's many other ways. Jesus, I would imagine, would be thinking, well, if there's another way to go to heaven, why does he have to die on the cross? Well, that was to show us the seriousness of our sin and to clarify what it means to worship God alone. Jesus gives us that access to God. And yet sometimes, even if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we can miss what that means. I remember talking to someone one time and hearing this illustration. And for our purposes, we can think of it for any sport, but he was given free tickets to a football game. So it could be soccer or football in this case. And he said he got the tickets. And imagine having seats. They were pretty good seats. Wow, you can see all the field and all the action. But in this case, the person that gave him the tickets at halftime came to him and said, what are you doing up here in these seats? He said, what do you mean? These are the tickets I have. Yeah, that was part of the ticket, but look at the backside. And on the backside, it said, all access pass, which meant he could go anywhere. So starting then, he wasn't just in the seats, but he was able to be brought all the way down to the sideline, to be right there amongst all the players and the coach. When it comes to what Jesus has done, we don't have to be left wondering, are we good enough? Or left wondering, have I sinned? Have I done too many wrong things? Jesus tore that separation apart because he is the great high priest who brings us fully to God, our Heavenly Father, so that our whole lives can be lived freely with full access, with thankful hearts. In Hebrews chapter 5, if we continue on, we'll see how Jesus doesn't just bring us to God, but we're also brought together in unity. We'll pick back up in verse 5 in Hebrews chapter 5. It says, So Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are forever, or you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of of Melchizedek. So as we think about worship, we find unity in Jesus, not just to God, but to one another because of what Jesus has done. He's not just the high priest, and we saw that in verse 5. He was appointed, meaning Jesus met all the requirements, including becoming fully human. The perfect Son of God, He was born He grew up just like us. He suffered. He cried out with 
cries of tears, all out of obedience. But verse 8 describes that he learned obedience, which might bring up a good question. How is it that Jesus, being fully the Son of God, perfect, how did he learn obedience? How do those two things connect? Well, the reality is, Jesus never stopped being God, but Jesus added humanity. So he learned obedience by having us were talking here and seeing here by suffering as a man. So the only way that we worship is through Jesus, and it's only possible because Jesus obeyed perfectly for us. We're not left this morning wondering on our own what worship is all about. That's part of what Jesus came to show us to obey for us so that all of us can join together and learn that as well. Verse 9 is also important. Though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for who? For all. For all who believe. Once again, being made Perfect doesn't mean that Jesus had to earn something as if he lacked, but it, it just means that he, he brought to completion the payment for our sin. Being therefore perfected and completed, what Jesus did is the two natures within Jesus are now not separated, but united so that we can find perfect unity with God, and then that can bring unity to us together. In fact, as we think about worship, part of worship is unity. There's no other way to find true unity. In fact, to illustrate that, as I mentioned at the front of your bulletin, we have a creed or a statement, and I won't take time to read it for us, and you can certainly look at it, but what it does show us is that back in the year 451, so long before any of us were ever born, there were people trying to figure this out. How is it that Jesus is both God and man? Well, as you can imagine, there were a few wrong ideas to try to put this together, missing out on what Jesus said and what the Bible teaches one group was trying to say at this time in history that Jesus is fully God, but God would never subject himself to be human. And that fails to show the humanity of Jesus, even as we read in Hebrews chapter 5. Doesn't fully understand what the Bible teaches. And there was a second group that altered that a little bit. They said, okay, well, sure, Jesus was fully God and, and he was human, but perhaps he was both of those things at the same time. But the problem there is that that's not united. That was trying to create Jesus to say as if he was two separate people. It again 
fails to see what the Bible tells us and who Jesus truly is. The theological term for this is the hypostatic union. I don't mean that to be distracting. It can make sense for us to understand hypostatic, meaning static or substance, and then union, meaning unified, meaning he's one person, but with two parts. He's fully God, taking on full humanity so that we can have unity with God. And also, even as we see here, thankfully, people came together and found unity to trust what the Bible actually says. Right there in the middle, it says, there is no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. And the reality is that Jesus still brings unity to us today. Why is this important? Well, a halfway Jesus doesn't work. He fully was, is God and he's fully human to live perfectly as a man so that his obedience is now our obedience to help us as we live and as we worship. In one way, Jesus showed us what worship is all about. You see here in Hebrews 5 how he cried out, cries in tears, indicating how Jesus prays and how Jesus has prayed for us. In fact, as an example of that, you can look to John chapter 17. Right before going to the cross, Jesus prays. He even prayed for us. John 17, verses 20 and 21 says, My prayer, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't that powerful to know that long before we were here, Jesus prayed for all those who would hear this message of the gospel, of his death, his perfect life for us. And the result would be what? Faith. That we would believe. And not just trust in him, but also value what Jesus values. Unity. And if we don't have unity, it misses who God truly is. It misses the true message of Jesus. Another example from history is in the 17th century, a Christian leader by the name of Thomas Manton had this to say, divisions in the church as Christians, it breeds or it encourages atheism in the world. Thomas Manton said this at a time where there was pressure from, king, uh, from kings in England who were trying to tell people, in addition to the Bible, here's what you have to believe, adding different requirements instead of looking to who Jesus truly is. This Christian leader was willing to say what we need more of is unity found only in Jesus. 
to not cause divisions, to not miss the big picture that Jesus truly gave his life for us, which means a few things. How do we live that out in unity? Well, one is to make sure that we know that we make mistakes, but Jesus is always right, which means we can let Jesus be right for us, which means when we do that, we are claiming the rightness, the correctness of Jesus, and that's what unites us. It also means that we let Jesus be perfect for us. It can be difficult to worship when those things are not valued. But we can find unity even with our own imperfections. That's why when Jesus was describing and when the Bible was talking about what it means to be a church, it's not just a building. It's not just individual churches. Jesus used the word ecclesia, the original Greek language. But what that means is just gathering. It's people gathered together to join in unity that we believe and trust what Jesus says, the authority of God's word, the Bible. The way I came across to illustrate that. It's common in many government places. In the U.S., we have the U.S. Supreme Court. What I understand here in Mexico, very similarly, have a Supreme Court, but not to think politically, but just what that illustrates is that the Supreme Court is made up of individual justices. But it's the coming together that signifies the full Supreme Court to what? Come to a decision to join together on what's important and hopefully make right decisions to benefit and not hurt. Same is true for us. Our unity is found in Jesus as we gather, as we meet, to live and worship in unity. Finally, Hebrews chapter 5, we're given another way to think about why we worship, how we worship, and why that's important. To finish chapter 5, here's what 11 through 14 says. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So a final way we can think about worship, as we see here, is to be childlike, not childish. Even as those verses describe Early Christians, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
or trying to put this together themselves. Maybe perhaps thinking, you know, this Bible, these teachings, this is, this is too hard. Can't you just make it simple? Perhaps thinking, you know, we like the part about God's grace, but we don't want to think about the hard things, even as we've read this morning, obedience and suffering. Maybe we don't want to talk about those things. Or even this topic of the nature of Jesus. That seems complex. How is it that Jesus is really God and man? And yet here we are a few thousand years later and it seems like people might be tempted to do the same thing, right? To maybe pick some parts of the Bible, maybe ignore other parts. Common criticism of the Bible, maybe you've heard it, is to say, well, I mean, you can't trust all the Bible, can you? Some people even say there are errors, there are contradictions and mistakes. Whenever I pose that question, my question back is, have you read the Bible? Because often than not, when I ask that question, people answer, well, I've read some of the Bible. I said, okay. Well, have you read, for example, the Gospels? Matteo, Marcus, Lucas, Juan. Start there. See how Jesus lived these things, taught these things. See how Jesus truly changed hearts. And he was honest with us, including to make sure, as we've seen this morning, to not be childish in the way we think about life and faith. Verse 11 in Hebrews 5, yet again, talks about stubbornness, pointing out how that can be childish, kind of like the illustration we're told there about being picky eaters. Don't want to overuse illustrations from parenting, but if you ever tried to get a kid to eat food, right? It could be great food, steak, try steak, it's delicious. And a kid, no, I don't want to try it. Just one bite. You almost have to force it. And then they take a bite. And they go, oh, steak is good. That's right. That's the same issue we can find ourselves in. If we focus on the things that don't matter. One illustration is this, and I even had someone share it with me to say, well, the Bible's outdated. The Bible misled people to think that the earth was the center of the universe. I said, well, really? What do you, where does it say that in the Bible? They said, well, the, the Bible describes how the sun rises and the sun sets. We know that's not true. We know the earth goes around the sun. It's a heliocentric universe, right? Well, not so fast. What's going on there? Places in the Bible that talk about sunrise, sunset. I even confirmed it on my weather app on my phone. It still says what? Sunrise. <laughs> And why do we say that? Well, it's our observation. The sun looks like it's rising, even though we know it's about perspective. It's not a true contradiction. Sure, yes, people tried to misunderstand the universe, but they also took a look at how God created to see how that doesn't contradict the Bible. That should be true for us as well, to encourage others, to make sure we don't have our minds made up 
before we read the Bible, before we talk about these things, to avoid childishness. One way we're told that here in Hebrews 5 and verse 14 says, Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. To be trained to regularly exercise. It's actually the same word where we get the word for gymnasium, a place where we work out to make sure that we stay healthy. Well, as we study what God has said and worship Him together, what that does is it helps us to avoid childishness, feeling sluggish. Maybe think about that same with our car maintenance. Make sure you're getting regular oil changes so the gears don't get corroded and locked up. So how do we do that? Well, that's why as we think about why we worship, how we worship, not just to avoid childishness, but Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 to be childlike in our faith. First six verses of Matthew 18, Jesus describes the need to come to God with open hearts, not stubborn. Starting in 18, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Fair question. Verse 2, he says, He called a child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever comes, uh, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. We've been given a warning, a challenge, aren't we? Help us make sure that we come childlike. Part of the reason why Jesus says that is even at that time, and even perhaps even today, children can be overlooked. Many parts of history, they were the weakest, the smallest in society. But we're told to come to God with dependency with trust like a little child if you've ever been walking and have a little hand that reaches up to grab yours. Kids know this, that they have many things that they're not able to do. They can live humbly. For us as well, as we think about why we worship, because we need to live humbly. Instead of thinking that we live by our own merit, status, our own goodness, try to force God, we rely like a child needing love, protection, and help. But Jesus also here, Matthew 18, gives a word of warning. Verse 6 warns against causing children and those who trust God in this way with child likeness to avoid 
causing others to sin. The point we're meant to see here is that God doesn't ignore those things. There are hard things for us to look at in our lives, and the Bible is honest. So even as we hear this warning with a large stone tied around their neck to be thrown into the water, that certainly gets our attention. But what it should leave us thinking is, we don't want that to happen. Well, the good news is, we don't do that, do we? We don't have to tie large rocks around each other's necks because we shouldn't have to. But God says this to make sure that we know not to manipulate others, not to use God against other people. When we do so, it dishonors God instead of worshiping Jesus alone. Worship, then, helps us to remember who God is, what God says. Which means that worship is more than just a service, but it does include gathering together. Worship is more than music, but certainly we can sing songs as we've already done this morning. Worship is more than just being spiritual, but even as we've read here, Jesus says to have childlike faith, faith that is informed, faith that knows that we have full access to come and meet with God daily, regularly, and to enjoy that with others in unity so that we can all grow to be more like Jesus who is perfect for us and is right for us. Would you join me again this morning in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize again, even what we've read here, there are many things in the Bible that cause us to stop and wonder, perhaps even some hard things that can reveal areas of our life that we're not proud of, that we might be struggling with. And yet we rejoice again to know that you didn't leave us separated from you because of sin. That Jesus gave his perfect life so that we have full access to you. Even now, we can look to you with the gift of prayer together. Would you help us to encourage our hearts and to also see how there are many others who are misunderstanding even the Bible. God, we trust that you'll help us to stay humble, to keep looking to you for the big questions, to not be afraid to look at the difficult things that we read, but also the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in our own lives. Thank you so much that even in a world that seems so divided at times, Jesus, you bring unity. Not because we deserve it, but because of your mercy. Keep helping our minds to be changed. Keep helping our hearts to be encouraged. And help us to stay unified to what we see in the Bible but also 
to know that Jesus is the way, the only way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus gives eternal life forever. We praise you. We thank you. As we look to you in all that we do with thankful and grateful hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.